I'm Brian Walsh, and from Impact Alpha, this is Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. Today, we're excited to share episode four of our special series produced in collaboration with the Midiar Network called Beyond Tradeoffs, Investing Across the Returns Continuum. It's not simple binary outcomes that you can expect there. Um, out there, you will have to split the risk return and impact in many, many thousands ways. So it's uh, welcome to, um, uh, you know, more and more shades of gray. That's Vishal Mehta, co-founder and managing director of Lok Capital. Vishal spoke with Impact Alpha editor David Bank about building markets in India for financial services, education, and healthcare. Let's jump right in. I'm here with Vishal Mehta, co-founder and managing director of Lok Capital, coming to us from his home in Pondicherry State in India. Welcome, Vishal. Thank you, David. How are you? I'm terrific. Thank you. We're, we're going to be talking about beyond trade-offs and this whole story of Lok Capital. Uh, so my first question to you, Vishal, uh, what is, what is the, the, the promised land beyond trade-offs? Um, it's a lot more complexities. It's a lot more shades of gray, um, as the title of my article also mentioned. Um, it's not simple binary outcomes that you can expect there. Um, out there, you will have to split the risk, return, and impact in many, many thousands of ways. So it's uh, welcome to um, uh, you know more and more shades of gray. More and more shades of gray. Embrace the complexity. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's start with with you yourself. Um, I, I know you you have a long history. I think Low Capital is is seventeen or eighteen years old now. But but how did you come to your own impact investing uh, career? I think the um, for me it started uh, during my business school. Uh, I was at Michigan and um, had the fortune of. Um, uh, associating myself with Professor C.K. Prahlad. Um, he was uh, at that time still teaching and he was um, obviously very actively writing about his own experiences and uh, strategies around bottom of the pyramid. And he's considered the founder or the originator of even that term, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, uh, bottom of the pyramid. Uh, it's just that he used to call it gold at the bottom of the pyramid. And once I graduated and I had my own ideas around it, we debated that very aggressively. Uh, I told him it's not always gold. <laughs> you can, <laughs> you might even find silver, you might find other metals also. So in fact, you know, which is exactly what the topic is. It, these are different shades. Uh, uh, not all of these um, sectors uh, uh, related to bottom of the pyramid are going to be uniform. But uh, going back to your question, uh, yeah, I think that's where for me, the journey started. Um, uh, anybody who has ever interacted with CK, uh, you know, he's a guy who can brainwash you in five minutes. For me, because I was there for two years, so there was no escape. Also, uh, during my Michigan time, um, I don't know if you're aware, David, there's a very wonderful eye care model, which is globally recognized uh, by probably every, uh, you know, developmental institutions called Arvind Eye Hospital. Arvind uh, uh, was also in my cohort at Michigan. So I got to work with him. We were trying to see how we can replicate some of those models uh, that they have succeeded in India in, uh, and go to other African countries. So 
I think this whole two year of Michigan uh, confused me a lot. I had come in with a very simple objective of being either a consultant or a banker. And then between a combination of CK and Arvind, they completely uh, changed my plans. Um, um, uh, and that's how the kind of journey started. And then I was fortunate to meet some other people who I call the co-conspirators of Lok. Uh, uh, Rajiv Lal, he was at uh, Bob, Bob Pinkus. Uh, Vijay Adwani, who's currently the head of uh, Nuin, the te teacher's pension fund in New York. Donald Peck, who um, used to run the Actis and then the CDC office for South Asia and India. So these are all the earlier kind of co-conspirators of Lok. And um, once um, I got to interact with them, uh, I moved back to India in 2004 and started the Lok journey. Okay, well, that's a great place to jump off. I mean, what I would like to do with you, if it's possible, is to walk through the different stages of Loke and I think also the different funds and, and have you help us understand the ways in which the expectations and the execution really has to be adapted for different circumstances. I think it's part of your shades of gray uh, framing. So the first fund, as I understand, was a microfinance fund. And, and in those days, the MFI world was just developing. So tell us what you set out to do and what challenges you faced. I think what we set up to do was uh, very simplistic. Uh, um, you know, are there enterprises where the mixing of social objectives and uh, returns, financial returns can be achieved, right? Uh, it had to start as simple as that because there was no benchmark. Nobody had done it. We didn't know which sectors uh, will be able to develop any pipeline. We had no clue of uh, you know, how exits would work. So it was a very simple uh, and a very broad objective that we came in with. Uh, very quickly, what we realized was that we are better off focusing on one sector to begin with because of the other unknowns in our business plan. Uh, let's not try to be too aggressive and follow uh, you know, four or five sectors. So we narrowed it down to microfinance. That also because microfinance in its own journey in India, which was, uh, and now I'm talking 2004, so microfinance had already been in India for, you know, two and a half decades prior to that, right? So there was enough modifications, development in the model itself where we felt that maybe it's time that it can attract, uh, you know, private capital um, uh, with some kind of a subsidy attached to it. Thus far, uh, microfinance was largely develop, uh, uh, dependent on developmental capital and concessional capital. So this was literally the first stage where we felt that let's transform some of these microfinance companies from nonprofit trusts and societies into private limited non-banking finance companies, right? So that's how, yes, uh, the fund one started. The hybrid part, the subsidy part that I mentioned was largely uh, with the hypothesis that to keep the lending rates reasonable, and those were also very subjective terms because uh, you know lending rates in microfinance across the globe varies uh, tremendously. Um, so in India, you were talking about sub 30% annual interest rates. And to keep it reasonable at the same time, be able to attract management talent to scale microfinance, we would require some kind of a smart subsidy. And if that subsidy was to be, or that support had to be provided by the venture 
arm by itself, then you know what? We might not be able to attract other investors. And that is important because ultimately it's a capital intensive business and it will require more capital. So we went in with this hybrid model where we will provide you the initial risk capital, but we'll also help you with concessional capital for your IT systems, for hiring your management, for making your uh, operations more efficient so that you can keep the lending rates kind of reasonable, right? And so you were able to raise that money from grants on the side of, as a sidecar of the investment fund? Absolutely. So the first, in the first structure, actually the sidecar was a US-based 501c3 public charity, right? And um, thankfully, we were able to convince at least two or three of our key investors in the fund itself to then see this as a joint program and not just their venture uh, and the risk capital. And so the IFC, FMO, uh, these are guys who were able to provide us the initial technical assistance capital also. Plus, we also had a very wonderful uh, strategic partner with us called Exion, which is probably the, you know, world's oldest microfinance uh, consulting and investment firm based in BC, uh, who did not provide us with uh, the subsidy concessional capital, but they provided us with the resources. So the idea was we could use some of the experts to be siphoned and positioned in our companies uh, for a long period of time. So I'm talking about six months to one year and where they could help uh, the companies and the various uh, you know systems and HR and uh, other kind of operational efficiency projects. So that's how the initial grant or concessional capital was raised. You talk about uh, um, the public goods that are required for the development of these markets. One of them is is skilled managers to to run the thing. That's great. I mean, I I call them public good uh, just simply because uh, you know just left to market by itself. Uh, it doesn't work, right? The markets looking for market returns will not allocate enough capital on these spaces for them to grow by themselves, which by the way, microfinance has come to that level now after 14, 15 years, but at that time that wasn't the case, right? And then if you are putting an a venture approach to it, that by itself at that times won't have generated those kind of returns. So I guess, yes, I mean, so the hybrid model was partially used for these management resources as well within our team at that time, just to give you a sense, the first fund was a 20 odd million dollar fund. Anybody who runs a $20 million fund, you know, knows the difficulty of managing the fund economics, uh, you know, because we were running on the regular 220 fee structures and all of that. So it was very tough, but we at that point had a eight member full-time team uh, and the only way we managed because we didn't give salaries or we gave very low salaries and said that we will need these people because once I start making investments, I need to then start working with these companies also very closely, right? Uh, I just can't expect that they, they by themselves will be able to number one, recruit this talent and number two, provide for all of their incentives uh, also um, on their own. So yes, that was an important part of it. Then you set out to to broaden beyond, I think, just microfinance um, in in fund two. Um, if I understand the the progression, uh, you thought that that uh, there was other needs that the society needed and other opportunities. Absolutely, and as I said, that was the idea from day one. But you know, since we were starting our journey, we wanted to kind of keep it simple and 
learn and uh, you know develop our own presence in india have our own team in india before we venture out into more uh, uh, other broader services but once we have that confidence from fund one that's when we said you know which are the two three other sectors where our last mile operation model of microfinance can be utilized right and so therefore our experience of microfinance comes handy right and at the same time there is there is at least some decent pipeline out there right where the entrepreneurs are wanting to build this inclusion focused businesses right uh, uh, so combination of these two we said health and education would fit the, fit the bill very well and uh, so they also became an important uh, but a small part of our kind of fund to mandate yes so 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 fund two though those other sectors had different obviously dynamics than the microfinance microfinance in it, at least in the in the period that you were in um experienced some spectacular exits there's there's controversy that ensued from some of that and um as as well but at least there was a a pathway in in, in some of these other sectors uh it's it's much rockier road i think no it is and uh, you know uh, and it still is um we haven't gone beyond that yet. There are numerous uh, uh, studies done globally, but for India specific also, there have been two, three studies now which talk about the overall money that has come into uh, impact investing. And one can very clearly see that most of that success, both in terms of investments as well as in exits, is still fairly skewed towards financial services, including microfinance, right? So health, education, agriculture, water sanitation have had very little success yet. And the reasons, as we found out in our own journey of fund two is those businesses do require uh, many other investments that in, in financial services, one was able to see over a period of time, either by other investors or by the regulatory side, the policy investments. Uh, you know, we talk about that national um, switch for interbanking, the uh, unique identification, um, to be able to authorize financial as, uh, you know, transactions. Now, all of those investments happen over a long period of time. It's just that other sectors haven't seen those investments. Um, uh, and there are other, you know, very unique issues of uh, each of those sectors and can go into that. But, you know, broadly, just to give you an example, education, for example, is still a very straight controlled space, right? I mean, 80% of education in India is still delivered through public schools, right? So, is there really a role for a private player to come in where the regulations are not at all in place for uh, encouraging that? And again, a very small example. I don't know if you're aware, but you cannot run a for-profit private uh, K-12 school in India, right? So as a, <laughs> there is a, you can only run it as a non-profit, right? So there it goes. I mean, if you want to go by absolutely by the law, then a private model does not even exist, right? People have figured out ways around it. But to begin with, that tells you this, you know, that sums the story very well that the government or the policy in India does not believe there's a role for private education in India. I know one of your portfolio investments, Hippocampus, I, I think focuses on preschool, partly for that reason. And to be clear, we're, when we talk for-profit, we're still talking quite low-fee uh, schools for low-income people. Is that not right? 
Yeah, I mean, that was our focus, uh, what is now called as the affordable private school sector. I think they call it APS or something. But uh, yes, that was clearly our focus. But, you know, the regulations are doesn't differentiate. It basically says the entity delivering the education services has to be a nonprofit, right? And um, uh, so, and that was uh, partly the reason, as you mentioned, why companies like Hippocampus who were fairly motivated to do this, be in the affordable education space because they saw the obvious gap in the quality of education and the access narrowed their focus to only preschool because that somehow uh, was still out of the scope of the regulation of uh, uh, being able to uh, set up a for-profit company as well. Okay, so when you when you run into these kind of obstacles, I think in the second fund, you had to moderate the return expectations that you had and how did the LPs respond to that? And uh, I think the LPs um, um, understood those challenges as well. Um, uh, through our own experience, we have some very wonderful, you know, long-term LP relationships. So there is enough engagement that happens, and we are able to pass on our learnings uh, fairly actively. Uh, and I, as I said, I mean, those issues. I mean, we are still doing investments in the agri and the health space. We have kind of moved out of education space. Um, and those challenges still remain. And actually, you know, what a time it is. I am today, uh, um, hopefully, signing my uh, first, uh, actually, it's second, second profitable exit uh, from the health space, right? Uh, and um, um, hopefully, I'll make, if that deal goes through, uh, about a 15% IRR. And believe me, to me, that is, you know, that has been more difficult than a 40% IRR in financial services. So that tells you the, these things are uh, very difficult and much more um, nuanced in terms of um, being able to uh, complete the full cycle of uh, investment and exit as well. Yeah. So your 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 LPs and you are embracing the the shades of gray again. It's a journey, um, and. Um, um, I wish there was more and more transformation on the LP side. Uh, it's an interesting point you bring up. If you were to ask me, um, one of the biggest gaps uh, that we're still kind of being slow in adapting, it is exactly that. I think my sense is majority of the LP universe in impact investing is still stuck with this market return phenomena, right? Which is to say that, yes, we will do impact, but we do not want to compromise on the on the market return and uh, expectations, right? So uh, uh, I hope uh, through these kind of debates that we're having currently, you know, one is able to push uh, and uh, uh, encourage the debate on the various shades also. Now, there's there's something I think it's a little bit off the wavelength of your, of your funds, but you have tried to um, incubate a, a high impact fund for just these kinds of sectors where maybe it's not quite ready for the commercial capital. I think you're doing that with your own funds through the foundation. So um, that's correct, David. So in, in all of our funds so far, our um, fund manager entity has been owned by a foundation, which is our own kind of foundations of all the partners. And we also share 50% of our carry uh, of all the funds, of all the first three funds with this foundation, right? So there is some corpus there now, because thankfully we have made carry in fund one and we will make in fund two as well. 
and through that money we are trying to incubate investments in some of the very high impact companies right where uh, literally my starting point is the impact right um, uh, when i look at an investment from low capital my starting point is these are my sectors show me your business model and your return uh, uh, you know you know profitability metrics when i look for deals through this foundation the high impact my starting point is tell me which is the impact right tell me where the impact is and now by the way uh, can you service uh, a very concessional um, uh, 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 rate of uh, you know investment and uh, uh, just to give you an example one investment that we've done we've basically given them a, a 7% rupee which is equivalent of uh, you know almost like 2% in usd terms uh, a 7 year loan right now it has been structured as a loan because that's what the cash flows of this high impact company can process and service but i am behaving like an equity investor i have a board seat i have the rights but i'm tuning or fine tuning my uh, thesis for the uh, or the investment structure to suit what the company can actually practically service so that's and that's in this high impact fund that's correct based out of the foundation you are also raising uh, and you you raised fund 3 i think you're now raising fund 4 on the low capital side and you're one of the rare impact investors who's got a track record now to to get to fund 4 is it get does it get easier not really david uh, you know I, I think it gets easier to the extent that i can now be very confident that we will raise this money but the fund cycle the fundraising cycle um, uh, still is a long cycle um, um, and if you want to keep you know increasing your fund sizes because you are seeing up opportunities then you know convincing new lps is uh, i don't think that gets easy <laughs> do the impact uh does the impact performance of of the earlier funds um uh, come into play in in the fundraising? Are your LPs uh, going for the impact? So it depends. You know, I think we are a little bit in that stage where we are able to attract both the multilaterals, the kind of impact focus LPs, and they're also in multilaterals. Also, there are various shades. Huh, by the way, so not every DFI looks at impact the same way, right? Some are more commercials that are some are more impact focused, right? But we are also now able to attract purely commercial investors. And the way we do this is we tell them this is what our strategy is. We are focused on these three or four inclusion focused sectors. This is the kind of investments we do. This is our impact report, right? You know, if this is of value to you, great. If it is not of value to you, I'll just give you my IRR sheet. So, you know, we are kind of, uh, uh, you know, we are an impact fund. We do impact reporting and we publish it. Some people take it and some people ignore it, and and uh, and we are okay with both. <laughs> have have the investors though uh, gotten uh, beyond trade-offs, as it were? Do do, do you oh, still have to face that uh, no, th no. that perception? So in in the in the high impact fund, therefore, in fact, what we're saying is that we will not go and raise this out external money for at least the first two years. Right? We will do it through our own. Um, foundation money and partly the reason David is exactly what you said I I think if I go and do it now a basis like a piece of paper you know hypothesis on a piece of paper 
I will struggle and I will make the fundraising very ineffective. So rather what I want to do is I want to have a portfolio, prove something, and then start the difficult journey of raising this high impact money. I don't think uh, I will find many LPs there. In fact, I know there are three LPs that I will target. And if I can get two of them, I'll be happy. And Omidyar is one of them. <laughs> so <laughs> there is, it's a very limited, it's a very you know limited universe where people are willing to embrace this kind of things. Yes. So Vishal, you've seen the development of several different kinds of markets uh, in the in in India in impact. How do you see the market development going forward? So um, I'll put my pessimist hat first, and then the uh, and we'll end at the more optimistic note. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I'm a bit worried and a bit, a little bit of a skeptic of this whole rise of impact investing that is uh, coming from some of the very large asset managers um, uh, in the West um, who, who are seeing this as some kind of replacement of emerging market growth capital and, you know, impact investing uh, could kind of very well fit in there. So it becomes a new sales term for them uh, without really understanding the nuances of impact investing. So to me, that is a, a little bit of a dangerous trend because that could lead to some very major expectation mismatches going forward, right? Uh, the good thing there is that there is more capital that will be available, but uh, you know, from a long-term point of view, I wish it, were, it is being done in a much more uh, transparent um, and uh, you know uh, with very clear expectations set on the impact side right uh, which i know is not happening uh, you know is getting kind of a little bit bypassed so that's my skeptic side the optimistic side is exactly the kind of debates we are having right the kind of work uh, omedia has been encouraging macarthur foundation just in the last one month has come up with a, a wonderful uh, initiative to you know, I think it's about a $150 million initiative on this blended finance. Uh, I think they call it C3 Catalyst uh, uh, Capital. Which... Catalytic Capital Consortium, C3, as you yeah, say. Exactly, exactly. And and, uh, uh, and we have been in touch with them. Uh, we are actually trying, trying to submit our high impact proposal to them as well for this because it just captures this whole discussion we had on high impact extremely well. Right. So uh, these are the, you know, this is the kind of new kind of capital that should become available where people are willing to embrace uh, the white spectrum in a much more granular way rather than, you know, in a very binary way. So that's my, you know, uh, that's my hope that we will be able to uh, therefore garner much varied kind of capital to be able to support very, very varied kind of social problems that one sees. So shades of gray, nuances, complexity. I'm getting a sense of how you see the world. <laughs> Thank you very much, Vishal. Uh, very much enjoyed talking with you. I hope to speak with you again soon. Thank you so much, David, for your time. Thanks. That's going to do it for this episode and returns on investment special series, Beyond Tradeoffs. We'll continue the conversation on the Beyond Tradeoffs channel on Impact Alpha's subscribers-only Slack channel. Find out more at impactalpha.com and follow us on Twitter at Impact Alpha. This podcast has been a production of Impact Alpha in collaboration with Omidyar Network. Special thanks, as always, to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the fintech company Liquinet. Thank you so much for listening. 
We'll see you in some sense of the word next time.